Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So I'm so excited that this next speaker is here. If you have been looking at any blogs about the tutors online at all in the last decade or so, you will have come across her. And it's just such a thrill to be able to have her and to have her share her knowledge with us. So it is Claire Ridgway. Claire Ridgway is a British writer of history books about the Tudor dynasty with a particular focus on the life of the Boleyn family. Since 2009, she has run the websites theannebolynfiles.com and elizabethfiles.com, and Claire is also involved in supporting a community history website, The History Files. So I'm so thrilled to have Claire Ridgway here, and we're going to just jump right into the question. Slightly. Um, they were, the, the, the family that Anne came from was landed gentry. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, she wasn't common, she wasn't even middle class in the kind of way we'd say it. She, she was not aristocratic. Her, her mother's family, the Howards, were, you know, aristocratic. Um, but her, you know, the Boleyns, they weren't aristocracy, but they were wealthy, they were landed gentry. I mean, her was a great grandfather was uh, Lord Mayor of London. He was a mercer as well, but he, he'd risen to be Lord Mayor of London. Um, so landed gentry, I think um, Gareth Russell um, sort of explained it really well. He he's um, done a course on the six wives of um, Henry VIII and many the courses that on. He talks about how in those days the aristocracy and the gentry sort of mixed. Mm-hmm. There wasn't there wasn't quite a class system like we think of it. That there was a mix between the gentry and the aristocracy and it was quite fluid and so Anne wasn't you know this commoner um so yeah I mean the Howards obviously she was descended from the Howards with her mother being Elizabeth Howard and they were like one of the premier families of you know England so you know that was good blood I mean they they descended from Thomas Brotherton I think who was then the first uh, Duke of Norfolk and son of um, Edward the first so you've got the that aristocracy being in her blood. Mm-hmm. Um, the Boleyns, we don't know much about the Boleyns, their, their background. I mean, there's this thought that um, they probably descend from the, um, the Counts of Boulogne, hence the name. You see, I mean, there's so many spellings of Boleyn that you see, but one of them is like Boulogne, as in, you know, the place in France. 
So perhaps they came over with the Norman invasion with William the Conqueror and Berlin became, Boulogne became Berlin. Um, so there's thoughts like that. But also Thomas Berlin was descended from the Butlers of Ireland, who were a very wealthy uh, landed family. His, um, you know, his, his grandfather, well, his mother's Lady Margaret Butler, and she was um, an heiress um, of her father, Thomas Butler, the Earl of Ormond, and the family suit was the castle of um, Kilkenny which is absolutely stunning. I haven't been there myself. I really want to, but it's, it's stunning. So, you know, she wasn't just this common, you know, woman become lady in waiting and then, you know, rose to be queen. It's, it's not, that's, that's not fair to say. It makes great fiction, I think, but uh, not, not very real, really. Yeah. So, yeah, she's, she's a bit of a mixture with who she descends from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very potted background of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, sure. and she had royal, royal blood, I mean, there was royal blood in, in her because, you know, of the Howards, I mean, there were various lines of royal blood that she did. Like all of Henry's wives, she had royal blood. And, and the nobility and the gentry were so small in those days. I mean, England didn't have the population that it does today. So, you know, that's why everyone seems to have been related, really. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and so can you tell me a little bit, you talked about her family and her ancestors. What about her parents specifically? Yeah, Thomas and Elizabeth. Um, well, they're both born around the same time. I mean, we don't have specifics because, unfortunately, parish records, you know, just didn't, they, they didn't have to um, register births and that. Um, but we believe that Thomas and Elizabeth were both born around circa 1476-77. Um, Elizabeth Boleyn was the daughter of Thomas Howard, who was Earl of Surrey and was then created later Second Duke of Norfolk. Um, she was um, a child of his marriage to Elizabeth Tilney. Um, as I said, the Howards were one of the premier families of of England at the time, very, very important family with a long history of service to the monarch. Um, unfortunately, they kind of picked the wrong side at the Battle of Bosworth. Um, they, they were being loyal to their, their king, you know, and the Howards were on the side of Richard III. So, of course, after Richard was defeated by Henry VII, the Howards then had to really show uh, Henry VII that they could be loyal to him. Um, and they, they ended up losing uh, the title of Duke of Norfolk for a while, um, but then were restored once they'd shown uh, you know, loyalty to the new king. Um, Thomas Boleyn was from um, a Norfolk family, um, the Boleyns. Um, both he and Elizabeth were sort of based in East Anglia. That's probably how they got to know each other, how the two families got to know each other. We think that they were married, uh, going on from um, the jointure of their marriage, and that we think that they were married about 1499 or so, 1498-1499, sort of turn of that century. Um, and that they had at least five children. We know that they definitely had five children. We don't know the age order of them. There's so many arguments about who was born first and what year they were born, because again, 
no parish records for Burke. Um, Mary, Anne, George, and then Thomas and Henry. And we know that Mary, Anne and George were the only children to actually survive into adulthood. Although Alison Weir has claimed that at least Thomas um, survived into sort of uh, early, early adulthood. But I found no evidence of that. And their, their graves, with little crosses on, are, are the type that we use for children. They're, they're buried in Penshurst and Beaver. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so, so that's kind of who they were. Thomas was son of Sir William Boleyn of Blickling, which is in uh, Norfolk, and Lady Margaret Butler. And as I said before, that um, his paternal grandfather uh, was Sir Geoffrey Boleyn, a wealthy mercer and Lord Mayor of London. And then his maternal grandfather was the Earl of Ormond. So he wasn't, you know, Elizabeth wasn't going, it wasn't, it was a good match. You know, some people say that Elizabeth, you know, she should have had a better match being a Howard, but he was a good match. Thomas, he wasn't uh, as commoner. Um, it was a good match for both. Mm. So, and then we have um, Thomas um, being, well, I think, I think he, he can be described as ambitious. Um, very ambitious and very talented as well. I mean, I've, I've written down some of his early career highlights, just focusing <clears throat> on very early, 1497, so probably just before he, he married um, Elizabeth. He fought um, on the King's side against the rebels of the Cornish Rebellion. Um, <clears throat> 1501, he attended the wedding of Catherine of Aragon and Arthur Prince of Wales. Uh, 1503, he was chosen as part of the escort to take Margaret Tudor to Scotland for her marriage to James the Paul. 1509, he was um, chosen as an esquire for the body for Henry VII. And then on the accession of the new king, Henry VIII, he kept that. And he became, he was created a knight of the bath as part of the coronation celebrations for Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. So you've got that happening before Henry VIII came to the throne. He was already, you know, on the rise before Henry VIII came along. Sure, sure. So then their children, when did they first go to either the English court, I suppose in the case of George would have spent time, you write in your book about him spending time with his father in the English court, and then um, the, the girls going to France or to Margaret of Austria's court. How did that happen? How did that get arranged and how did that happen? Yeah, early education would have been at home. They were, were of the gentry, so um, it would have been at home. They would have been educated at home. And, and Thomas Boleyn, he was like, um, like Thomas More and like Anthony Cook later. Um, he was a Renaissance man. He gave his daughters the opportunities that a lot of families would only have given to their sons. You know, he, he was a humanist, he was interested in education and literature and religion. So you can imagine these children having quite an enlightened education, but it would have started at home. We don't know anything about Mary's sort of early life. In fact, Mary is this blank canvas. <clears throat> she makes great, yeah, great fiction because you can just do anything with her because, you know, she's just as blank. Um, but, um, so we don't know anything about her or Anne's early education at home. 
but we know that George was being prepared to follow in his father's footsteps as a diplomat. I mean, um, Thomas was very gifted with languages and we know that George could speak French, Latin and Italian. He was fluent in French. Um, so he was obviously being prepared to sort of follow in his um, father's footsteps at court. Of course, we have Anne being um, going to Mechelen in the Low Countries um, before moving to France. Um, the first record we have of George at court is Christmas 1514, uh, 1515, the Christmas period, the 12 days of Christmas, where he's recorded with his father as taking part in the Christmas celebrations um, in a mummery. Um, so he was being at a mummery. Yeah, it's some kind of mask or play. And then we know at some point um, following that he became one of the king's pages. Mm -hmm. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that he was at court all the time serving the king. Um, sometimes it was just a sort of a title rather than, you know, you actually being a servant. Um, but he was chosen as one of the king's pages. Um, the next thing we know really about the children is um, Mary Boleyn um, being picked to go to France with Mary Tudor, who was being taken off there to marry Louis, Louis XII, who was quite a bit older than her, but Mary was chosen as a maid of honour. We have Thomas Boleyn, um, he must have been a real charmer, he must have been very good at negotiating because when he went over to the Low Countries um, to negotiate with Margaret of Austria, um, to, well, to negotiate really with her father Maximilian, but sort of Margaret was doing the negotiation, he had such a good relationship with her, became such good friends with her. I mean, they gambled together and, and they became close. That led to him um, securing a place at her court for Anne which, you know, I know I've said that Anne wasn't a commoner, but she also wasn't a princess of Europe. You know, Margaret's household, her sort of maids of honour were very, very important um, people, very important women. So that was an amazing opportunity for her. And it, it shows not only Thomas's closeness to Margaret, but I think it also shows that Anne must have had something about her. I mean, Thomas must have really uh, praised his daughter, you know, to get this place. So we have Anne going off in 1513 to Mechelen to serve as a maid of honour for Margaret of Austria. Then we have her being recalled just a year later because she then gets chosen with her sister to go and serve Mary, Mary Tudor in France. We don't know when Anne arrived in France. Um, we don't know whether she got there in time for the wedding of Mary and Louis, but it was obviously sometime in that autumn. And then, of course, you've got Mary Tudor in the new year. Louis um, dies. Mm -hmm. Mary Tudor manages to marry Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, and then, of course, returns to England. Um, and I, I think, I mean, we don't have the records of this, but Mary Boleyn doesn't really come up in the French records after that. So I think Mary Boleyn probably went back to England with Mary Tudor and her entourage. But we know that Anne was kept on in France by the new Queen, uh, Francis I's wife, Queen Claude, and she went on to serve her. 
Um, the next we hear of Mary Boleyn is 1520 when she marries William Carey, who's one of um, Henry VIII's uh, privy chamber. And the next we hear of Anne in England, um, well, we hear of her being recalled from France in late 1521 um, because there are marriage negotiations with the Butler family, whom she's related to in Ireland, with James Butler. And also, she's been chosen to serve Catherine of Aragon. She gets called back, probably arriving sort of Christmas, I would say. It's late 1521 or early 1522. And we know that she was definitely back for Shrove Tide 1522 because in March um, she plays Perseverance in the Chateau there pageant. So we have that. So that's how they, uh, I don't think I've missed anything out. That's, uh, that's the records we have of them, you know, at court. Sure. Um, so let's talk about Mary and there's all these kinds of stories about her and the French king and then attracting Henry and what's the truth around the, the French side to start with and then how she attracted Henry? Yes, I think uh, Eric Ives got it right when I was talking to him about Mary and uh, he said to me, what we know about Mary Boleyn could be written on a postcard with room to spare. I, I did think sometime I might write a Mary Boleyn biography and it'll just be two pages followed by the rest of the book, just blank. <laughs> because she's just this blank canvas. I mean, all we have is rumours and we have this reputation as her, you know, being this this whore, this mare, you know, that the King of France provides and, and all derogatory kind of stuff. But we don't know whether that's just because of the whole blackening of, of the Blin name, but there isn't any definitive evidence of her having an affair with um, the King of France. There just, there's no hard, nothing concrete at all. But we know that she must have had a sexual relationship at one point with Henry VIII. But we only know that because of the dispensation that Henry applied for um, when he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. And he'd set his sights on marrying her. Um, in 1527, he applied for a dispensation to marry a woman who, um, well, this dispensation was to get around the um, impediment of affinity. And it said, um, in whatever degree, even the first. Now that means that he slept with someone that was very closely related to Anne, i.e. her mother or a sister. Mm -hmm. uh, so that leaves Elizabeth Berlin or Mary. And when he was sort of confronted later uh, with rumours that he'd slept with Anne's sister and mother, he said never with the mother. So, but he didn't say, oh, I'm not with the sister either, you know, so he was kind of saying that he had slept with Mary. But, you know, as I say, Mary's this blank canvas for fiction. So you have, you know, like the other Berlin girl, you know, Mary, it's Henry VIII's true love, and they have this long relationship and children, and it's just so romantic, and, you know, but we know absolutely nothing about their relationship at all. I mean, most historians um, date it, and I'm, I've been guilty of this in the past as well, dating the start of this 
fair to early 1522 because you have Henry riding out at the Shrovetide Shrovetide Joust. Are these jousts, these pageants, there was always a theme. There's always this chivalric theme of love or unrequited love, you know, it was very, very medieval. Mm -hmm. He rose out at this joust with the motto, El Moncur Anavera, she has wounded my heart. Now, he didn't say Mary Boleyn has wounded my heart or anything, it was she, it was just, you know, and this might just have been purely a chivalric theme, mm -hmm. um, but people take that to be, you know, talking about Mary, she's rebuffing his advances, you know, he's heartbroken. Um, but I think that's quite a leap, really. Uh, I think it could easily be said that it was just the theme of those short-eyed celebrations. There was always a theme that uh, Epiphany, for example, there was always a theme pageants. Shrove type was always a theme. So it could just be that he just picked a theme that he liked. He might not have been referring to a specific woman and if he was referring to a specific woman it might not have been Mary. There's, it's just too much of a leap. Who's to say it was Mary? And I'd, I think as well with the dating of their relationship, if we look at Bessie Blunt, Elizabeth Blunt, who served Catholic of Aragon and who we definitely know was a mistress of Henry VIII because she had his acknowledged legitimate son. Um, the kind of his MO with her was that he had this relationship with her and then after he'd finished with her and we don't know whether he just had Henry Fitzroy with her or whether there was a daughter Elizabeth as well, Elizabeth Norton um, argues that she also had a daughter with the king. But after he'd finished with Bessie Blunt, he then arranged a really good match for her. Um, you know, he, he helped her, he, he organised a good marriage for her. So I kind of think that if you go with that MO, that it's more likely that he slept with Mary, whether it was once, twice, a few months drawn out, who knows, and then arranged a good match for her. Um, William Carey was a good match. He was one of um, he was a member of the king's privy chamber. He was related to the king as well. He was close to the king. Henry even went to their wedding and gave them a wedding present. I kind of think that, yeah, 1520 organising a marriage for her after the king's finished with her, rather than orga helping organise a marriage for her and then sleeping with her. Mm -hmm. To me, that really doesn't make sense. That of course, you get people then saying, but look at William Carey look at you know the records for all the grants he's given all all of these wonderful manners that he's given all these all this money but henry you know henry the eighth is seen as this monster and this tyrant but we i mean if you read through his grants and letters and papers he was also extraordinarily generous to people who served him loyally and people and people that were his friends you see the same names coming up all the time those that were in his privy chamber, you know, like Charles Brandon, Henry Norris, and, and William Carey. If, if you say that, oh, well, Henry was rewarding William Carey because he was sleeping with his wife, and he was just kind of keeping Carey happy because he was his wife, then you could say that about other men as well. Well, he must have been sleeping with Charles Brandon's wife. 
yeah, Mary Tudor. <laughs> um, he must have been sleeping with Henry Norris's wife. All these men, no, they, yeah. I mean, it's you can argue various points, can't you? It just to me, it kind of makes more sense that he he had a relationship with her before matching her with Henry. Mm -hmm. So who knows? <laughs> Great fiction. Yeah, sure, sure. So do we know anything about how her parents uh, reacted to this first affair um, with Mary? And then, like we talked about, there's this the kind of idea that they were sort of pimping their daughters out. And so yeah. it, how did they react with Mary? Do we know that? And then um, how did that inform how they reacted with Anna? Thomas Boleyn, either he's seen as this weak man who's controlled by his wife and the Duke of Norfolk, who of course um, Elizabeth's brother, his brother-in-law, or you've got Thomas being really, really ambitious and him working along with his wife and the Duke of Norfolk to pimp out their daughters uh, to the king, you know, so that they can advance, you know, they really want, they want the crown, for goodness sake, you know, mm -hmm. um, but that makes good fiction, but has absolutely no basis in historical fact whatsoever. Um, as I said to you earlier, you know, by 1509, Thomas Boleyn was already on the rise. Um, and that was before Henry VIII, you know, came to the throne. And then you, you have this magnificent rise. It carries on in the same way after Henry VIII comes to the throne. throne. But even before either, even if you go for the date of, you know, prior to 1520 for Mary being involved, there's still this great rise before that. His, his name regularly appears in um, lists of grants and appointments in the 1510s. He was a royal favourite. He was a trusted diplomat due to his gift for languages. And also, I think he's probably a very diplomatic character as well. He was good at getting what the king wanted. Um, in 1516, he was canopy bearer at Princess Mary's christening, so, you know, that's important. Um, in 1517, he was picked as the official father for Margaret Tudor's visit to London. He was a member of um, the King's Privy Council by 1518. So he'd started his rise under Henry VII and had just continued in the same vein um, under Henry VIII. Um, so, <coughs> Thomas Boleyn had absolutely no need whatsoever to pimp his daughters out to the king. He was already a royal favourite. And, and perhaps it would have been a risk as well to pimp out his daughters to the king, because if the king had, hadn't liked it, if something had gone wrong with the kind of the flirtation relationship, then, you know, Thomas might, might have been blamed and his career might have suffered. Um, it's hard to know how Thomas and Elizabeth felt about Mary's relationship with King. I mean, obviously we don't even know any details about Mary's relationship with King. But there does seem to have been a breakdown in the relationship between Mary and her parents. Because when she was widowed in 1528, um, William Carey uh, sadly died in the, the big epidemic of setting sickness, the same one that Thomas Boleyn suffered from and Anne Boleyn suffered but survived. Um, William Carey died, leaving Mary in quite um, dire straits financially. Probably not as dire straits as poor people, you know, mm -hmm. but she was used to a certain level of living. And the king 
had to actually step in and make persuade Thomas Boleyn to actually provide for Mary. So I think that points to some kind of breach in that Thomas Boleyn wasn't already helping her. She was having trouble and, you know, surely a loving parent who's got a good relationship with his daughter would already be helping provide for her. So I think there was some breakdown there. Um, as far as Anne's relationship with the king and the king courting Anne, um, Chaprim, one of his dispatches, writes of how the Duke of Norfolk and Thomas Boleyn had actually tried to dissuade the king from marrying Anne. Mm. But that doesn't point to either of them pimping Anne out to the king if they were actually trying to dissuade the king. So I think Thomas was clearly ambitious. He was ambitious for himself and he was ambitious for his children. But I don't believe that his ambition was at the expense of his family, at the expense of his daughters. I don't think that history backs that idea up in any way. Mm -hmm. But great to make him a baddie in fiction. <laughs> sure. So um, what about um, George Flynn, who you wrote a book about? Um, yep. Again, we don't seem to know that much about Jane, his wife. Um, but can, what can you tell me about their relationship and about what George was doing during this period in his rise? Well, unless someone leaves a diary or, or let, there are letters between husband and wife, and that, they, there's no details on someone's personal relationship because it is personal and private. Um, but there's certainly no evidence that, uh, I think it was in the Tudors, isn't it, where you see Thomas Boleyn pretty much forcing George down the aisle to uh, marry Jane, and they absolutely hate each other. Well, there's no evidence in, in primary sources that George was forced to marry Jane, or that he then was a bully to her and treated her badly. Again, that makes good fiction. Um, but not, it's not factual. We know the marriage was arranged, but that was perfectly normal for people of their standing to have, you know, matches made between two families that would benefit both families. But we also know from, um, from examining sort of marriages at that time that if someone, either the bride or groom, really detested the person that their family were putting forward that, that generally the match wouldn't go ahead if someone really didn't want it to happen the match wouldn't have gone ahead so there's no evidence of either of them opposing the match they they went with it, with it. and also they would have known each other before they got married because they were both you know both families were were poor um both families were of the were sort of East Anglian families. So they would have known each other. Uh, so yeah, there's no, there's no historical evidence of them being forced into it. I mean, George, it's hard to say what his character was like. Um, I'm sure like many other male courtiers that he might have been a bit of a ladies man. You know, while his wife is busy or whatever, perhaps, you know, perhaps he was a ladies' man, but there's no evidence of him being linked with any particular woman um, at court. There's no evidence of them having an unhappy marriage. It appears to have been childless, unless you go down the whole 
the roots of George Berlin, Dean of Litchfield being um, a child of theirs. We, we just don't know. No one's been able to link um, that George Berlin definitively to our George Berlin. Um, people argue that, you know, a childless marriage in those times where, you know, contraception wasn't good and it was really important to have children to carry on the name and that. Um, we, we don't know. Jane wasn't very important and she might have had miscarriages. She might have had stillbirths. There was no need. She wasn't a queen where these things were recorded. And even with the queens, even with Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon, we argue about how many pregnancies they had and that because the records just don't exist. So she might have had trouble um, well, she might have been barren, she might have been infertile, George might have had problems, he might have been infertile. So just because their marriage seems to have been childless does not mean that it was unhappy. Mm -hmm. um, we also have this myth, and it is a myth, that Jane hated George so much um, that she provided evidence to bring down the Berlin's in 1536. She hated George and Anne and was going to do her utmost to bring them down. She is never named in the historical sources as, as being one of the key witnesses. We have names, Lady Worcester being named by um, Lancelot de Carle. We have Lady Bridget Wingfield providing posthumous uh, evidence mm -hmm. um, against them. But Jane isn't actually named by any of the contemporary sources. She's named by fictional sources or by later sources, but not nothing at the time. And actually in May 1536, after George's arrest, Jane sent him a letter. We don't know exactly what the letter said, but from George's comments and the comments about the letter, it was a letter of comfort and it said that she was going to petition the king on his behalf. We don't have a record of her petitioning the king, but then some of the letters, some of the documents um, were damaged in a fire in the Ashburn House fire and are mutilated or missing. So she might have petitioned the king um, or she might have realised that actually she'd get nowhere with that. Um, we don't know. So we've, we've got that. And also I thought what I find is quite poignant is that when Jane was executed alongside Catherine Howard in 1542, an inventory was taken of her possessions. Because of course her possessions were then going to be seized by the Crown because she was a traitor. And all her clothes seemed to have been black. Now you could say, well, perhaps Catherine Howard, you know, all her her ladies had to wear black, and of course black was expensive, it showed your status. But for all her all of the fabric to be black. I mean, that kind of suggests to me that she was still in mourning for her husband, and that's not actions of a woman who hated her husband. So you have that, and then you have George's reputation as this rapist as well. I mean, um, this is based on George Cavendish's Metrical Visions, which um, is poetry. Um, it's all in verse, and he says of George, my living bestial, I forced widows, maidens, I did deflower. So he makes George out to be a right horrible man. Um, but there's no other evidence of that. There's not even hearsay that George, you know, deflowered 
maidens and raped widows and that no one not even those that disliked George uh, you know say that I mean Shaffrey certainly would have I'm sure would have jumped on uh, rumours of George being this rapist and actually George Cavendish says all kinds of things about the king as well he uses uh, he, he's quite awful about Thomas Culpepper and he uses the same kind of language that he uses about George and Thomas Culpepper about King Henry VIII as well. And nobody accuses King Henry VIII of uh, you know, weird sexual practices, being rapists or being homosexual, which of course was uh, you know, the worst thing that you could be in those days. So yeah, it's very uh, myths, not again in historical sources. So, so yeah, so I don't mm. think, I, I don't, they might have had an unhappy marriage, who knows, but there's certainly no evidence of it being unhappy. Sure, sure. So then, um, Anne and George, um, what, what was their relationship like uh, as brother and sister? Can you talk a little bit about that? They were certainly close, and I think it's because they were very similar. I mean, it's it's funny that they were close with the fact that Anne obviously spent many years in France um, away from her family but I think her and George were very similar they were highly intelligent I kind of the George and Anne that I get from reading the sources is that they didn't suffer fools gladly I think they were witty and they could be spiteful as well um, and I think we know, we know their closeness because of the translations of religious texts that George did for Anne. I mean, that's such a beautiful thing to do for anyone. They were religious texts that he was interested in. He was interested in, um, you know, the new ideas from the continent. And they were obviously texts that he knew that Anne would be interested in. And I mean, they're just beautiful. Uh, they're illuminated. He's got her badge, the Fulton badge, beautifully done. They've got dedications on them, you know. Um, and actually, I can't remember the wording. I haven't written it down for my notes. But it's actually his dedication to her is quite witty, and it's actually uh, as well. And it, it's the the wit and the words of someone that that loved you. A loving brother who 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 could actually take Mickey out of you without offending you. Mm -hmm. So so yes, I would say incredibly close. And you know, Anne when she got to the tower in fifteen thirty six, you know, she went straight to where's my brother? You know, what what's happening with my brother? And I think she was consumed with worry over her family, particularly her brother, what was happening with him. It must have been awful with mm -hmm. him being executed you know, the day before her and knowing that him and her friends, um, men that she cared about, you know, were being brutally killed in this way. So yeah, I think they were very close. They had shared, shared faith, shared ideas, shared ambition. Sure. So I can just, what I want to do, if I could time travel, I'd go and be a fly on the wall when you have George Berlin and Thomas Wyatt and Anne sort of making up poetry and verses and discussing literature and having a good old gossip as well because I think it, it would have been quite spiteful at times and, and very witty. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. 
Well, so can you talk to me a bit then um, about religion? And you talked about the translations and that segues nicely into what Anne and Anne will forever be linked, of course, with the Reformation and then moving on to the disillusion. But she wasn't really a, but, well, tell, can you tell me about how she, what she was thinking as she saw the disillusion happen then and, and yeah. that side of her, yeah. Jordan had horrible histories on one day when it was talking about, you know, the, the Reformation and England, you know, swapping between Catholicism and Protestantism and, you know, Henry VIII, one minute he was one, one minute he was the next and, and you know, Anne Boleyn being Protestant. And I, I perhaps was come in at that point, I was in the other room and I heard him saying, Anne Boleyn, Protestant. And I'm <laughs> going to say, no, no, kids, don't listen to this. Because I think it's far too early in the 1530s to use labels like Protestant. Um, it's far too early. You could say it a bit later. You could say it of Anne Askew and Catherine Parr and Catherine Brandon. And that, but you can't, I don't believe you can use the term Protestant in the 1530s because all of these ideas that were sweeping in from the continent were very, very new. Mm -hmm. And Anne Boleyn certainly wasn't a Protestant. I think um, Guy Bedwell, who's written about Jacques Lefebvre de Pape, which is one of the, um, one of the French reformers who Anne was very interested in, she read his books. Mm -hmm. He described Lefebvre as neither as a Catholic with a bad conscience, nor as a crypto-Protestant, but rather as an evangelical who firmly believed that the truth, when positively proclaimed, would triumph over error. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually is a really, really good description of the Boleyns, um, particularly Anne. She, she was influenced by French reform. She'd been for how many years, seven years, at the courts, the royal court in France. She had spent time with um, Marguerite um, of Anjouland. She'd, she'd, I can imagine her discussing these new ideas that were, were coming out with other maids of Queen Thought. Um, and we know from the literature that she owned, that she owned, um, works by Clement Marrow, Jacques Lefebvre, this out. And these were all French. She wasn't reading works from, well, Germany didn't really exist then, but for, she wasn't reading Luther. Mm -hmm. um, her, her, her flavor of reform was definitely French. <clears throat> it was justification by faith. That was definitely, although we kind of, we linked that with, with um, Luther that came from French reform as well, that, you know, you got to heaven, you got saved through your faith in Jesus Christ and through the grace of God. Uh, not by anything that you did, but by accepting Jesus Christ as your saviour. So through Christ alone, so you've got the justification of faith idea. Um, she believed in the authority of scripture and she was very much involved as a patron of the Bible in English. She believed that um, people should be able to read the Bible in English. So she supported the dissemination of the Bible in English and the authority of scripture and wanted people to be able to read the Bible for themselves so that they knew what scripture said. Um, she also believed in the, this came from French reform as well, living your life to glorify God. 
Um, not now. There was there's this whole idea, of the Catholic idea um, of good works and you know doing good works to get to heaven or and paying your way. Mm -hmm. I'm very unfair here, but kind of trying to be simplistic. Um, but Anne, the reform that she was reading was still an emphasis on good works, charity, good deeds, but that was more to glorify God. And because it was part of a good Christian life, if you believed in Jesus, if you believed in, in what the Bible said, then you would naturally be doing good works anyway. So, so these were the kind of ideas coming from France, and this is what these are the this is the literature that Anne was reading. You could call Anne and George evangelical. I think probably had they both survived 1536, they may well have gone on to become like Anne Askew, Catherine Parent, and to become more what we'd call Protestant, because those ideas, more ideas, were flooding in, but. Yeah, I would say she was an evangelical woman with a personal faith, but she was still a Catholic. She did not, she refused to be, um, to be a patron of, I think it was Tristan Revel's work, because that was actually against the miracle of the Mass. She didn't go so far as denying transubstantiation, mm -hmm. denying the miracle of communion. Mm -hmm. um, she didn't go that far. So, she wasn't a radical in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, had time gone on, then she might well have become more Protestant. I don't, don't believe, I think it was uh, G.W. Bernard um, who says that because she wasn't, because you can't label her Protestant, then actually she was a, a closet Catholic and wasn't interested in reform at all. Or the idea that the Berlins were only interested in reform because it was fashionable mm -hmm. and, you know, would help them with their rise, you know, with their ambition. But that can't be said. And seems to quite clearly had a personal faith. She kept the Bible out in her room. She encouraged her, her ladies to read it. She received manuscripts from George that were religious texts. I mean, you don't give someone religious texts and they're not at all interested. No. And then we also have her father, Thomas. Uh, sometimes he's uh, seen as this reformer. Um, other times he's seen as not sharing his children's faith. Mm -hmm. But um, he actually, let me find my notes. It's Thomas Tebold or Tebbled, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. He was um, God's son of Thomas Berlin, and he actually went off to the continent, and he was reporting back to Thomas Berlin on the state of the, the kind of, of religion on the continent, what was going on with regards to reform, um, how are they, he had links with French reformers, how are they being persecuted? Um, so he was reporting back, and um, he was also um, linked to Cromwell as well. He was one of Cromwell's agents. But it says that he was travelling in Europe, supported by the Earl of Wiltshire, uh, yeah, feeding back on the religious persecution. But he also sent Thomas Berlin an epistle by the French reformer Clement Marrow, which Anne, Anne read his uh, literature too. He'd been forced to flee France due to his religious views. Um, and Tebold says that he hopes to hear from Thomas Berlin via Reynold Wolfe, bookseller of St. Paul's Churchyard, 
And when you dig into Reginald or Renard Wolf, he's a reformer. He, his bookshop is this kind of this place in London where reformers, you know, go to kind of share ideas and that. So I don't, I, Thomas Berlin was definitely a reformer as well. There's just too much evidence of him supporting reform, being a patron of reform to say that he wasn't interested in the same ideas as his children. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm trying to, trying to remember how many books Anne Boleyn owned that were um, religious. Oh, here it is. Eric Ives wrote about how there's nine books that still exist that belong to Anne and George, one or the other. Seven are religious and six of those are reformist in character. Mm. So, you know, Anne and George were reading literature that was cutting edge, mm -hmm. uh, new, new ideas. So, and of course, yeah, Tyndale's English Bible, she supported. It was available to her household. But as far as the Reformation is concerned, you, you, know, you have this idea of Anne Boleyn starting the English Reformation all by herself, you know? <laughs> but, but no, I mean, she obviously, being a patron of reformers, and we, we certainly know that she helps um, people within the church rise within the church due to her influence and patronage. And of course, she was Henry VIII's wife. Uh, you know, she did mark this passage, you know, in um, you know, the obedience of a Christian man where it talks about um, rulers only being answerable to Christ himself, to God. Um, rather than, you know, this idea that a ruler was under the dominion of Pope. Mm -hmm. and, and so Henry VIII latched onto this, not because Henry VIII was, um, you know, wanting to be a Protestant or, or was affected by these religious ideas. It just it would help him with his annulment. So that's mm -hmm. all he wanted. The break. The break with Rome is more to do with Henry's first and annulment rather than Henry VIII um, wanting to, sorry my dog's barking, wanting to get rid of um, Catholicism in England. So we, we have her influence, we have her being more of um, a catalyst, I would say, than being someone that actually started the Reformation. Sure. You can't deny her true faith and her patronage. Um, she helped reformers. We have her helping Nicholas Bourbon um, escape prison in France. And he came over and she, she helped to um, organize his employment. Um, he taught um, Henry Carey, her nephew, and I think Henry Norris's children as well. And she, she helped people escape persecution and that. But yeah, she didn't start the, the reformation in yeah. that's that's going too far right okay great so i've reached the end of my questions um <laughs> well, i could talk about the blends all day but <laughs> no but you've been so generous with your time um where look, now i want to give you a chance to plug all your stuff because you've got a lot of stuff happening where yeah. can people get more involved with you and your books and your courses and your all of that can you tell us a little bit about that yeah but i'm probably spreading myself far too thinly and there aren't enough hours in the day for everything i do uh i still blog 
for the Anne Boleyn trials. That's mm -hmm. ongoing, I think, well, since 2009, February mm -hmm. 2009, we're just going, uh, yeah, the anniversary of that. So, yeah, nine years. That's my podcast started in 2009. Uh, good things started in 2009. Yeah, 2009 was the 500th anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I spend quite a lot of my week on the Tudor Society. Um, that's um, I started that uh, summer of 2014. Um, I do a lot of work on that because every week I do a video talk every Friday mm -hmm. on a certain theme at the moment. Um, I've just been doing a series on Catherine of Aragon's pregnancies, for example. So mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time doing research and writing for the Tudor Society. And um, so yes, that's one thing. Medievalcourses.com. I mean, that's I've, I've done one course that I've done the life of Anne Boleyn which covers from her birth to you know execution her legacy um, and I've worked with um, Gareth Russell's one course for it and Samantha Morris um, on the Borgias, Tony Mount has done some um, medieval courses for that so I've been doing that as well. What else am I doing? Oh I've said this is my year. I've promised myself I've had some projects in the background for years now and you kind of lose track of them mm -hmm. um, but yeah the fall of Catherine Howard for Countdown I have promised myself that if it doesn't get published this year at least it will kind of get nearly finished this mm -hmm. year. She's been waiting for me since 2012 now I actually started researching uh, that book mm -hmm. and you know things get in the way other projects come up but I said that that's it's going to be Catherine's year. I'm going to try and get that done. And that will be um, the same format as the Fall of Anne Boleyn countdown, just counting down the days. I've, I've been sort of arguing with myself about how I'm going to start the book, whether it's going to start from the kind of All Hallows, Cranmer leaving the message for Henry VIII mm -hmm. about Catherine, because that I think is probably the real date that her fall began. But then you could say that her fall began when she became queen. Arguing with myself, but yeah, that's going to be day by day account of you know all of the events that led to Catherine's fall and execution. Uh, what else have I got in the pipeline? Oh, um, I've been working with Dmitry Yakovsky, um, an artist who's just done, just published um, a book with Deborah Biani, author of um, a biography of Jasper Tudor. They've just done a colouring book on the walls of the roses. And just before Christmas, it was, um, Dimitri sent me some pages that he'd done on Anne Boleyn. And he actually did one for um, Anne Boleyn Balsavant, and he did an Anne Boleyn colouring. And so I've kind of been persuaded to do a Life of Anne Boleyn colouring book mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So that will be text from me and not artwork from me, because yeah. you would not like artwork from me, and artwork by Dimitri. So that's ongoing. I've been throwing myself into um, French and Italian and all sorts of um, contemporary sources about Anne Boleyn's fall and execution and doing some translation mm. then. So that's a project I'd like to put out sometime is then, you know, bringing these, translating them into English and sort of sharing them with a wider audience rather than just balancing out to use them. Mm. Um, so yeah, life is crazy. <laughs> So when do you so life is good. Being, being neck deep, in fact, not even neck deep, it's this deep. Yeah. 
and choose a history every day is the dream come true really yeah so um so yeah i would say that tudor society is probably my main my main thing it's what takes up most of my time at the moment i really enjoy that because i just like the community aspect of it so other tudor history lovers other people that when you talk when you talk tudor people's eyes don't glaze over they actually you know they're interested in what you have to say oh and also tours i'm going on two tours this year as well okay um i used to do the amberlynn experience with the amberlynn Falls a few years ago um you know taking people to the tower of london Hampton palace and staying at hever mm -hmm. and i've decided to um buddy up the british history tours uh and um run that again and we're also doing a discover the tudors tour in september so yeah, Tudor, Tudor, Tudor. Great. All Tudor all the time. <laughs> yes. yes, but this is my year. If my book doesn't come out by the end of the year, Catherine Howard has still not been mentioned at all, then everyone needs to write to me and say, where is it? Okay. Okay, okay perfect. We'll hold you accountable to that. Yes, you have to. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for taking your time and, and sharing all about the families. I've, I've learned so much. So thank you. Oh, um, thank you for inviting me. As I said, any excuse to talk to you and I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.